0: Well, again, welcome to Manhattan Presbyterian Church. It's great to have you all here today. We're going to be back in the book of Philippians. It's been a while since we've, we've been here. And after today, we're going to be in here just two more weeks in the book of Philippians. And then, God willing, on February 1st, we're going to begin working through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's an Old Testament book, uh, one of the wisdom books. And after that, we'll, we'll see what we're going to do there. We're not certain about that yet. But today, we have a beautiful text. challenges what we think about Uh, in our heads, as well as what we actually do, working out in our lives. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Philippians 4. If not, you can follow along in your bulletins. Our focus today is going to be on verses 8 and 9, but I'm going to begin reading back in verse 4, just to give a little further context. So Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In 1863, the Russian author, let's see if I can pronounce this, I'm from Texas, so probably not, Fyodor Dostovsky. Evsky. Did I get anywhere close? Some of you might know. Anyway, he wrote this essay that was called Winter Notes on Summer Impressions. And in this essay, he gave this following challenge. He said, try to pose for yourself this task, not to think of a polar bear. It seems simple enough, just don't think of a polar bear. Uh, but this simple challenge has become a difficult question to answer, even for researchers now 150-something years later. There's been numerous studies with this, this challenge to it, uh, trying to figure out this simple question. How do you stop thinking about a white bear? Uh, one experiment had participants raise their hands, and they said, go ahead and, and put your hand down when you've stopped thinking about the white bear. What do you think happened? A bear back and forth. Every time they thought they'd forgotten, suddenly there it is in their mind as they're remembering that they were trying to forget about a white bear. What they found was what Dostoevsky, I won't pronounce it again, the author discovered in 1863. Uh, You see his full statement was this, try to pose for yourself this task, not to think of a polar bear and you will see that the cursed thing will come to mind every minute. In fact, Uh, What we've learned is that when we only attempt not to think about something, we often get obsessed with the very thing we're trying not to think about. We quite literally cannot get it out of our minds. This mental dilemma has proven it nearly impossible to accurately assess today how often people think about various topics and ideas. You can likely assess your own memory, though, your own thoughts, what goes through your own head during the day to some degree. Uh, Consider it. What did you think about today? What went through your mind today? Was it food you want to eat? How wonderful someone is, or how frustrating somebody is? A movie you've watched, or a book you've read, lyrics to a song, who people want you to be? Often we think of, of what we don't have, and we imagine how we might obtain that. Or we fear, and we worry that something might become true, that we don't want to become true, or we're, we're dwelling on past mistakes and how we might fix them. We, we think about the way someone hurt us or disappointed us, whether people are impressed with us, or if they think that we are smart or, or pretty or funny or compassionate or any number of other things. Often our, our minds dwell on situations we have zero control over. We all have many thoughts during the day, And when we lay down at night, often those thoughts are still rushing through our minds. Now, it's true, as Christians, there are a number of things that we ought not to think about. Some of the more obvious ones are lust, hatred of people, how we might deceive others, jealousy, uh, and really anything that Scripture has labeled or, or shown us to be evil. And so, for us, the dilemma of the white bear is that we can't simply think to ourselves... Don't be jealous. Don't be jealous. Don't think about how bad you want what they have. Because we're only going to think on it more if that's the way we try to do that. God has not designed our minds to be empty voids. Despite what it looks like at times. And this is exactly why our our list is not listed in the negative. What I mean is it doesn't say this. Finally, brothers, whatever is false, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is unjust... Whatever is dirty or impure, whatever is hideous, whatever is blameworthy, if there is any imperfection, if there is anything unworthy of praise, do not think on those things. Instead, we are encouraged to put into our mental practice what we really see in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. There it says, put off your old self, which belongs to your formal manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so how do we stop thinking about the white bear? We steer our minds away from the white bear altogether. This is important. Uh, Instead, we direct our minds to actively think about a brown bear or a blue horse or hopefully something more noble than either of those options. So there are three things from this wide angle in this text that I I want to point out to you about what we see in this this scripture this afternoon. The first is that even 2,000 years ago, people struggled with sinful thoughts. That's nothing new. In fact, the very first sin began in the mind of Adam and Eve when they failed to trust God's word. Their actions followed their thoughts. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus confronts adultery and murder... He really takes us back to the source of those two things, uh, the thoughts of lust and anger. And so understand this, Christian. The battle against sin in our lives begins in our minds, minds which were not exempt from the effects of the fall. The second thing I want you to see is that God cares what we think about. He cares what your thoughts are. It's not just our actions. He cares what we dwell on and what we believe about him, what our minds think about all day long matters to our God. The third thing I want you to see is that we can actually control or or guide our thoughts. In Christ, because of the gospel, we can begin to see God renew our thought lives, and that's the power of the gospel in our life that God has called us to. And I mention this because we tend to think that our thoughts are on autopilot or are somehow outside of our control. And the truth is, our minds are not on autopilot. Let me explain it like this. And until we have become glorified in eternity, our minds are like a car with poor alignment. When we're driving, when we let go of the steering wheel, your car is going to wander off the road. Uh, If we don't remember that, you know, we can steer this car, we actually have some control over it, then then really we're going to drive right off that road into a ditch. And when our minds wander away as we can expect they will, as they wander into lust and hatred and and unrighteous anger, we must remember, I can steer this car. I can direct my mind back on the path that God has given me. And so while we we can't step in and and steer our dreams at night, God has given us the ability to steer our thoughts. Uh, We are not just along for the ride. I think that's an important distinction that we understand that. That's why God can... And he does give us a text like we have before us today, a text that is telling us exactly how it is we ought to think. It's the same thing we see in 1 Peter 1.13, where it reads, therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, yet your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that first part? Preparing our minds for action. Colossians 3.2 says something similar. It reads, set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And 2 Corinthians 10.5 reminds us that uh, as Christians, we are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. All of these verses and, and many more direct us to be active in guiding our thoughts. And so we can and we should be engaged in this battle. Truth is, I think one of the reasons that Christians today have a failing struggle with sin is that we've given up this, this battle of our minds. But never forget, so long as there is air in your lungs, it is not too late to take up this battle. It is of, of great importance for us, great important for us, Christian, that we give our minds to Christ's lordship, that he is the Lord of of our life, including our minds. But let's look at this series of ideas that we're told should, we should actively think about. Paul begins with this, whatever is true. This command for us to think about what is true includes facts and statements that are in accordance with reality. Not lies, not rumors, not embellishments, not what we feel, but what we know to be true. What is objectively true. You know, often we we let our minds believe the worst about people. Uh, We assume things. Uh, As you seek to steer your mind ever towards truth, make a personal habit of asking yourself often this question what do I know to be true in this situation? Interpersonally, theologically, ethically, in science and in business, in every area that God has led us into, we need to be asking this what do I know to be true? In John 17, 17, Jesus is, is praying to his heavenly father, the high priestly prayer, uh, and he says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As we guide our minds that, to think on truth, there's, there's nothing more helpful than that we fill our minds with scripture, meaning we must be reading scripture, memorizing scripture, meditating on scripture. Too often our minds are influenced by everything but the word of God. And the more familiar we are with God's word, the easier it will be to properly evaluate the world around us. And Paul continues in this section, we are to think about whatever is honorable. Honorable means respectful, dignified. Those things which are, are worthy of our respect. When, when we see someone do something that is right, even at great risk to themselves or what might be costly for them, that is an example of something we see and we say that is, that's honorable. When we put this into practice, we we ask ourselves, what's the best possible opinion we can have of our family or our co-workers, or, or really even those people that we naturally dislike? It's a directive to dwell on what is the best possible opinion of that person, rather than the worst possible opinion. Next, our text says that we are to think about whatever is just. This is about what is morally right and fair. Not fair by man's standards or, or some internal sense, but fair by God's standards. And we see a situation, we evaluate what would be a fair response, a right response. Or when wrong is done to us. This is when our minds typically go to it. Uh, our sinful minds tend to, to contemplate revenge. You now that's where mind mind goes. Uh, and it's never right. For us to have peace, though, the peace that we're seeing in this, we need to focus on, on justice, not revenge. We're then told to think on whatever is pure. Uh, this is the same word we see in 1 Timothy 4:12. It says, "Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity." Uh, we understand this word to mean "not mixed, not polluted." This has a moral implication of thoughts that are innocent or chaste or clean. Uh, and this is a common struggle. Uh, are your thoughts about others? pure in every area. Certainly, it includes uh, inappropriate sexual thoughts, but also hateful or or how you might deceive or manipulate another person. Uh, If your mind wanders off the path towards lust, we don't fight it by saying, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust. We battle by directing our minds to what is pure, to scripture, to honorable thoughts about people, to prayer, to those we wish to see trust the gospel, to the image of of a beautiful sunset to anything that is pure. Next, we're told to think about whatever is lovely. At the most basic level, this means beautiful, uh, something that's attractive or or pleasing, acceptable or or, or worthy of embrace. It's it's seeing that quality of a person who is attractive irregardless whether they have physical beauty or not. It's seeing another person's kindness, their their love for God and others. Whatever uh, is lovely also includes other beautiful things as well. Sunsets, art, a symphony of music, your voices when we're singing praise to God, the the laughter of children, uh, just the idea of of seeing someone in need being helped. Uh, What a a gift it is, too. I don't know if you understand this, just a gift that we are able to to see and evaluate and understand beauty in the world. It'd be easy for us not to have that, but God has given it. Our list here includes whatever is commendable, thoughts which are, are kind and unlikely to give offense. Uh, I know many years ago there's a movie entitled What Women Want. Uh, you might have seen it. The, the premise of it was this <clears throat> there's this accident, and Mel Gibson is the actor, and after the accident, he's able to hear the actual thoughts of women around him. I know, great premise, right? Some of what he hears is commendable. It's kind, encouraging. Some of what he hears is not. Raise that question, though, what, what if your thoughts could be heard? Scary thought, isn't it? I mean, would you still have friends if your thoughts could be heard? I expect we'd all be embarrassed to some degree if our thoughts were being broadcast for everyone to hear. That goes without saying, I think, on some degree. But, you know, the Christian life of of sanctification is is one where God is is growing us. And and that's why, really, the better question, the more important question, I think, is are your, your thoughts more commendable today than they were five years ago? No. Either way, let me encourage you to engage in this this battle of your mind so that your thoughts five years from now will be more commendable the last two things on our list is if there's any excellence if there is anything worthy of praise we should think on that this could be food or music or a book uh, something that's so wonderful that we want others that we care about to experience it, it as well And as we think about this list, we should realize that all these things inspire worship of God in service to others. I want to consider a few points of application on this before we take a quick look at verse 9. Romans 8, 6 reads this, or says this, uh, To set the mind on the flesh is is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is, is life and peace. Paul's talking about the need to have our minds set on spiritual things to be spiritually minded Christians, uh, to think about the sort of things that we've, we've just seen in our texts, things like the word of God and, and ways to pursue what is commendable and to walk away from lust, so that we might see people and all things through the, the lens of the gospel to see rightly. But really, the, the first question you need to answer for yourself, to give an honest answer to is this. Do you even want to be spiritually minded? And it goes almost without saying, but, I, but it needs to be answered. Do you even want to be spiritually minded? Do you want to think about what is true and lovely and pure and, and so on? See, this is a heart question. And, it, and it's a question that we need to answer to know, uh, you know, are we content to set our mind on the flesh? Or are we willing to fight the difficult battle of directing our mind towards spiritual things? Where are your thoughts in idle moments? Do you go where they go or do you direct them? Uh, Are you actively evaluating what information is coming into your mind? And are you actively thinking? Say you're watching a movie. Are you thinking about what you're watching? And, And I don't mean this in some fundamentalist, don't ever watch a movie kind of way. I mean when you watch a movie, are you aware if they have you rooting for someone to leave their husband? Are you aware if they have you rooting for the criminals to succeed? Do you even know that's happening? Don't be brainless. Think through with a biblical worldview everything that your mind is engaged in. Are you dwelling on what frustrates you about life? Or are you dwelling on the the blessings of God? Where does your mind go? And and that's true relationally as well. Ask yourself when you are in conflict with people. Am I jumping to conclusions about them that I don't know to be true? Am I assuming the worst about them or the best about them? This week, I I want you to return to this verse. Read it again. Go back to it. And I want you to think through situations in your life and, and put it into practice. that. That's really the point of this last verse. Verse 9, it, where, where we get into what it, what it means to put this into practice, it says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And we've seen this theme before in Philippians and earlier chapters, this, this idea of imitation and this idea of, of, of the peace of God in, in earlier places. The major point here, though, is that we aren't just to think about these things. We are to put them into practice. In fact, we haven't really learned what Scripture is teaching until we're living out what it has taught. What's encouraging about Paul is that he has, he's con- contemplated what is true, and then he's lived it out in his life. Learning information is, is easy. It really isn't that hard. Uh, putting that information into actual practice is where it becomes very difficult. Uh, knowing the right thing to do and doing the right thing are vastly, vastly different things. Paul's point, though, is that we need to be putting this into practice. And when it comes to, to Im- imitating Paul, I, I want to remind you that we're imitating a guy who is absolutely dependent upon Jesus Christ, not his good works for salvation. We're imitating a guy who, who sins and repents and, and, and finds refuge in his Savior. It's a, a call to imitate a guy who is... Seeking obedience, not on his own strength, of of some moralism, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit that that dwells in him. And finally, we're imitating a guy who who knows the gospel is real and worth dedicating his entire life to. And that includes his thought life. Understand this verse. It teaches us something beyond Paul as well. We we learn that less mature believers are to follow the example of of more mature believers. And we've seen this before, remember? Remember? So you ask, you know, whose example are you looking to? Are there people in your life that are, you can model as you see God at work in their life? Uh, I've told you before, Laura and I are often looking for someone at the next stage of life, particularly that we can learn from. When we see people who are, are living faithfully and are discipling their children well, we, we seek their advice. We want to learn how they, can, how they do it. We want to imitate what they are doing. And, and really, it goes well beyond parenting. Who do you see loving God well? Who do you see loving their neighbor well? Follow their example. Uh, I remember learning a, a friend of ours who kept this list of, of names and children names of the people who lived in the houses around them, and, and it was a great idea because they did it so they could learn their names and actually talk to their neighbors by, by name. It was a way to love their neighbors well. Uh, and it wasn't our idea, but after seeing this, we, we began to imitate it, and it's been a wonderful blessing uh, in our lives. And then the other side of, of imitation. D.A. Carson's made a statement about this. It's, always stuck with me I looked it up when, when I got here and it's difficult to hear he says if you haven't said to someone follow me do what I do then you haven't understood the New Testament call to make disciples don't be afraid of that idea because I know most of us push that off on the basis of I'm a sinner no one should follow me doing anything But the truth is, one of the things people should see if they imitate you is is how you handle failure. And people need to see that. To to show them what it looks like to ask for forgiveness from those that you sinned against. Model that. Show them what it looks like to rest in the gospel, to rest in Jesus Christ and and not our own works for salvation. Model that. I want you to notice at the end of verse 9, it's, it's a promise. It's a little different. We've seen these words almost word for word earlier in Philippians, but it's a little different because now he's making this promise that not only the peace of God will be with you, but the God of peace himself will be with you. It's what we see in Isaiah 26.3, this beautiful verse. It says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So church, let's, let's begin today. Let's nurture our thought life as we dwell on what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, what is full of excellence and that which is worthy of praise.